This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, it's Andrew West welcoming you to a special Good Friday edition of the Religion and Ethics Report. Donald Trump is back in the news and in court. He's the first president to be charged with an offence. It's either the end of his political career or a rallying cry to his supporters. Now, the most loyal of them all are so-called Christian nationalists. But who are they and what do they believe? Paul D. Miller is the author of the book The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism? I don't think there is anything wrong with loving our country. In fact, I think it's a positive virtue to be grateful for the country's that we come from, for our homes, for what's familiar. But I think the term Christian nationalism usually means something different. It's when you want to define your country as a Christian country and use the government to keep it that way. Most people on that side of the aisle, using the term Christian nationalism, they do seem to mean more than loving your country. They seem to mean that they want to define our country a specific way with reference to a specific cultural heritage. That's the country they want to love. And if our country departs from that heritage too much, they really seem to be standoffish and spend their time even condemning our country for not living up to what they think it ought to be. Now, where have you seen in recent years these displays of Christian nationalism that worry you? Worry you enough to write this very compelling book? I mean, by the way, you don't hear this said about a lot of academic books, but this is a real page turner. What what were you seeing? <laughs> no, but, but what were you seeing, Paul? What worries me, uh, I see it in both politics and I see it in religion, in, in my church. Politically, I see people using the name of my religion manipulatively. They're trying to claim the moral authority of Christianity for a political agenda that some of it is benign, some of it is neutral, some of it I I really strongly disagree with, and I think is maybe even against the tenets of my religion. But I also see in, in church circles, in the wider evangelical movement, confused theology about the right relationship of church to state. I see many believers maybe confusing their loyalties between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, and maybe elevating their love of country, which again is a good thing, but elevating it too much, and it can sometimes become even idolatrous. So I see both of these things as as worrisome trends, and I try to approach them both in this book. That was one of the most powerful things to come out of the book, uh, the sense of idolatry. We'll talk about that in a moment. You do spend the entire book taking Christian nationalism to task. You have no sympathy for it, but you are also eager to emphasize what it is not, and that is important. Now, understandably, a lot of people might think that Christian nationalism is burning crosses and the Ku Klux Klan, and is Christian nationalism that? I'd say that Christian nationalism exists along a spectrum, and most people who would fall somewhere in this category of Christian nationalists are not that. They're not overt racists, they're not extremists, and they're not into political violence. I do think that there is a wing or a portion of Christian nationalism that gets increasingly extremist and even flirts with political violence. We saw Christian symbols on display on January 6, 2021, when a, a mob broke into the U.S. Capitol building to try to stop the certification of the election. There was some Christian nationalism on display there. So I want to affirm that most Christian nationalists are not violent, and yet there is a potential for extremism and violence in the movement. 
And we do see it on display in some places. Yeah, that's fascinating. They're not neo-Nazis, but what, there's an authoritarian tinge to what they want? I think that's a fair way of putting it. I think nationalism, all nationalism, is intrinsically illiberal. And what I mean is it's contrary to classical liberalism. And I just mean 18th century John Locke, the philosophy of the American founders. All nationalism kind of runs a little counter to the tenets of an open society because it tries to give the government power to tell us who we are, what our culture is, what our national identity is. You know, I believe in a doctrine of free culture. We should be able to say who we are and freely explore and experiment and put together different cultural ideas of who we are as a people, not give it to the government to tell us who we are supposed to be. And so, again, I think nationalism kind of runs counter to that freedom. And so there's that seed there, as you said, a seed of a kind of authoritarianism Mm. or some kind of illiberalism that we will see crop up someplace or other in nationalist policy. Yeah. What's the difference between someone who is a social conservative and a patriot, which is you? I mean, you were a distinguished veteran of the United States. What's the difference between someone like that and a Christian nationalist? I'd say it's the difference between advocating for Christian principle, which I affirm, and advocating for Christian power, Christian principle, equality for all, justice for all, and things like, I'm, I'm pro-life, so I would advocate for the life of the unborn. I'd advocate for religious freedom for all, not just Christians. I think that's Christian principle. On the other hand, Christian nationalists, I think, gravitate towards Christian power. That is to say, they just want power in the hands of our tribe to gain predominance, recognition, honor. There's something called the National Conservatism Conference. It's a big powwow, big gathering of the nationalists. And on their website, they plainly say Christianity should be honored by our public institutions, Hmm. which I think kind of runs counter to our First Amendment that disestablishes religion. So I think that's an example of the difference. As a Christian patriot, love my country, want to advocate for Christian principle, but I don't want to fall in the trap of just advocating for my tribe's perks, prerogatives, and privileges. One of the most interesting arguments that you make is that uh, Christian nationalists say in their defence, we don't actually care about race. We care about defending the culture. What do they mean, Paul? If you listen to what Christian nationalists argue and just take their words at face value, they're not saying overtly racist things. And then they say it's all about culture, and anybody of any race can assimilate to American culture. But then if you look at the sort of embodied practice of Christian nationalism, the um, uh, sociologists, Andrew White and Samuel Perry, they've done a lot of statistical work on this. And they've shown how attitudes of Christian nationalism correlate strongly with other attitudes that we might characterize as perhaps racially insensitive. It's a range of opinions on anything from immigration to police brutality to gun rights or anything of that sort correlates strongly with Christian nationalism. There's a lot of different theories on what the connection is, but I'm just telling you the the facts that there is a correlation there. Mm. What are you saying? It's a a distinction without difference? Because I suppose I I could see intellectually their argument where they say, look, this Anglo-Protestant inheritance, it's the rock of America, but you don't have to be white to sign up to the project. I, I could see intellectually where they would say, look, it's belief, not biology. That's exactly what they say. Again, I sort of want to give them credit for making that distinction. And I want to affirm that 
our culture is not biologically determined. We absolutely can participate in any culture in the world through our own choices, by what language we choose to study, what religion we choose to adhere to, by the styles of living we cultivate. So it's, it's true that anybody can kind of assimilate to any culture. I think that's a true statement. But when I look at the practice, the broad brushstrokes, Christian nationalism in America is almost entirely within the white American community. Not exclusively, but almost entirely. That also has to play a role in how we interpret its meaning. This is the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you. We're speaking this week with Professor Paul D. Miller about Paul's intriguing new book, The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism? Paul, what do Christian nationalists want the state to do? Conservatives, and you're a small-c conservative, you're certainly not anti-state, but you believe in limits on state power. What about Christian nationalists who probably also say they're conservatives? What do they want the state to do? They want the state to honour Christianity. And that's almost a direct quote from some of their writings. They want the state to honour Christianity and to reflect a Christian public morals in a lot of very specific ways. One way is on immigration policy. They often say that they want to restrict immigration only to people who share our, our values, because they think that only people who share our values can actually assimilate to being truly American. And my response there is, you know, people generally don't come to America if they hate America. <laughs> so I think they generally already share our values, right? So I'm pretty relaxed about the immigration thing. School prayer is another example. Christian nationalists will often say that we should reintroduce prayer in public schools in America. The U.S. Supreme Court struck that down in 1963. But they want a sense of public morality coming from prayer in public places and public schools. And my response there is theologically, I actually think it's a bad idea to outsource to Caesar the things that properly belong only to the church. I think the church should keep that ministry for itself of prayer and teaching. Yeah, and you introduce us in this book. You certainly introduced me to it. And I think it's Caesaropapism. What's that? Because that's what you say they mean, Caesaropapism. So in the Byzantine Empire, the head of the empire, Caesar, was also more or less the head of the Byzantine or the Orthodox Church. He played a role in appointing bishops and sitting in on church councils. So Caesar was kind of also the pope, Caesaropapism. It's an arrangement in which the state helps to govern the church and also, in a sense, use the church as a moral prop for its public policy. The state ends up using the church as a propaganda, as a way of legitimizing its rule by saying, here, God supports my rule, and therefore you should too as well. That's Caesaropapism, the manipulative use of religion for state purposes. At the same time, though, Paul, Christian nationalists, you say, aren't theocrats. They're not aiming for an American version of Iran or Afghanistan, are they? No, they're not. They don't overtly want to you know, overturn the First Amendment. I would say that they favor a strongly accommodationist interpretation of it with much more a comfortable overlap between church and state, but not theocracy. In conversations with friends and colleagues over the months since my book's been published, I've been surprised at how openly some people are talking about essentially renegotiating our First Amendment and maybe even questioning the disestablishment of church and coming to a much closer relationship between the church and the state. There's a sense on the right 
that the state needs greater moral guidance, and we Christians are the ones to give it mm. in a way that is kind of directive and a little alien to to the American experiment. I mean, this is truly fascinating because if you do look, though, at places where there is an established church, the United Kingdom, the Church of England, but many of the Nordic monarchies, there is an established church there. These are very, very liberal, socially, culturally liberal places. They certainly wouldn't satisfy what Christian nationalists would want, I imagine. Yeah, I think that uh, many of the sort of the post-liberals on the right in the United States don't clearly see the effects of establishment. Establishment actually seems to drive secularization. When you prop up a church with state money and tell people, this is it, this is our national church, nobody sees a reason to go, and they don't give of their money voluntarily, it becomes almost a museum of your old national culture. It has almost a deadening effect on authentic, vibrant, bottom-up spiritual life. You're a practicing Christian. You're a very biblically literate Christian. Doesn't the Bible itself support the idea of nationalism? Didn't God allot men and women to their separate lands? Weren't the ancient Israelites the very exemplar of a quote-unquote great nation, an ethnically defined nation? Doesn't the Bible endorse Christian nationalism? I don't think it does. Many Christian nationalists argue that it does, and I think they've interpreted the Bible wrongly. I don't think Israel was ethnically homogenous. When you look at the peoples of the ancient Near East, there was a lot of intermingling and fuzziness around their borders. When Israel first left Egypt in the great exodus, it was accompanied by a mixed multitude, presumably of Egyptians and even Cushites, who made up a new multi-ethnic Israel. And as for the other nations of the Bible, sure, God made peoples but never really clearly defined what kinds of polities there were. There's no biblical evidence that something like the nation state existed back then or that God told nations to make themselves into culturally homogenous units, self-governing units. You had empires, you had city-states, you had all kinds of stuff. And God never says, be this instead of that. His concern seems to be with our well, with our moral character and with abiding by his law and with giving him and his kingdom the honor and the love and the re- that is due and repentance from our own sin. That's the point of the Bible, not nationality. Yeah, Israel's a fascinating case because a lot of Christian nationalists today, in a way, I, I suspect, as faithful to the idea of Israel as they are to the United States. What's its special place in their imagination that's for a whole other uh, <laughs> interview, perhaps. Israel has always played a unique role in American discourse and, and vice versa. Throughout American history, many people called America a new Israel and imagined that we had a sort of a covenant with God to play a special role in human history, somewhat akin to ancient Israel. Now, I think theologically that's wrong. I think it can actually be dangerous, a temptation to self-righteousness if you see your nation that way. These days, I don't know a whole lot of American Christians who still think that way. But they do look at the modern state of Israel as a kind of embodiment. It's almost a reflection of of America. It's another kind of city on a hill. It's another nation founded on a specific identity. And I think they see a kinship there. That's, again, a whole other conversation. But it does play an interesting role. Yeah, one thing that really fascinated me, Paul, is, I mean, you're such a critic of nationalism. You work very hard to distinguish it from authentic patriotism. You're very persuasive here. And you want America to speak frankly of its past, 
Yet you still believe in the idea of American exceptionalism. Tell me how you reach that conclusion. There are different kinds of American exceptionalism. There's the self-righteous kind that says we're exceptional because we're exceptionally good, mighty, powerful. And that's not at all what, what I mean and, and nor what I affirm. I think the United States has always been at its best when we look at ourselves, aspire to be an exemplar or a paragon of liberty and justice for all. That's the best sense in which we can try to be a city on a hill for all to see. It's a humbling thing to do to say, hey, everybody, look at us. We're going to try to live out political morality the best we can. We've obviously failed greatly in our history. And yet, one of the great things about the American story is, after each failure, we kind of push on and overcome and do better in the next generation. That's an inspiring story, and and it makes me proud to be an American. Uh, And I hope that story is also an inspiration to other peoples. On the Religion and Ethics Report, we're speaking with Paul Miller. Paul is the author of the new book, The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism. I want to go back to uh, a comment that you made. Why do you call Christian nationalism a form of idolatry? To be very clear, I'm speaking there of the what I call the ideal type of Christian nationalism. If you take Christian nationalism to its logical extreme and really push its premises out to the where they go, that's where I think you see an idolatrous form of it. I don't think most Americans who maybe fall a little bit into this camp, I'm not trying to accuse them all of idolatry, but it's clear to me that Christian nationalism at its root, when you look at it and it plays itself out in an extreme form, holds the nation up as an idol and asks us to define ourselves, even our very lives and the, and the meaning and worth of our lives in terms of the nation's greatness. And it becomes an object of worship. And it's a false worship. It's a false idol. And that's why I say I think it is a form of idolatry. Many other scholars of nationalism have noted that all nationalisms seem to do this. They parody the structure of religion so that our lives are organized around the life of something bigger than ourselves, the way a church usually is. Yeah, and of course, idolatry does violate, I think, the first principle of Christianity. You should have no other gods but me. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And in this extreme form, I think Christian nationalism is incompatible with Christianity. Was the great object, and we've spent, golly, more than 20 minutes discussing contemporary America without mentioning him, is the great object of idolatry former President Donald Trump? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) You know, I tried very hard not to write a book about Donald Trump, but there is one chapter in there about him. You know, I interviewed many people, many uh, sort of evangelical leaders to get their views on on American life, American politics, and on Donald Trump. And many of them shared their fear that there was a cult of personality around Trump, even in some evangelical circles. Trump famously said he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose voters. And I think he's kind of right. He can do no wrong for his followers. About a third of Americans, they've followed this guy despite everything through two impeachments and through January 6th. And so it it does seem that there's a loyalty, an attachment to him that goes beyond a normal relationship with a politician. Yeah. And what did Donald Trump promise Christian nationalists? What did this man, who in no way embodied the Christian life, the Christian mission, He was in no sense a good Christian witness, but yet what did he promise the Christian nationalists? In 2016, he campaigned directly to American Christians, and he said, I will restore Christian power. 
He said, you Christians have lost your power and I will bring it back. Vote for me and I will give you back your power. And that was the promise he made, not to fulfill Christian principles, not to be an embodiment of Christian values, and certainly not to live it out himself, but simply to be a vehicle of Christian power in government again. And it was a very powerful message for the American conservative Christians. Yeah, let me read exactly what he said. Quote, Christianity is under tremendous siege. We are getting less and less powerful. He said, uh, Christians made up the majority of Americans, quote, yet we don't exert the power that we should. I suppose what intrigued me there, though, was he was asserting in his own way a Christian nationalist form of identity politics, wasn't he? And to some extent, hasn't Christian nationalism simply become a reaction to the rise of a very aggressive identity politics elsewhere? I think that Christian nationalism is itself a form of identity politics. Nationalism is identity politics. It's the identity politics of the majority tribe. When minority groups do it, we call it identity politics. But when majorities do the same thing, we just call it nationalism. But it's really a group organizing itself for its own protection, its own interests, its own prerogatives, its own privilege. So we have this never-ending cycle of political warfare between the majority tribe, white Christians, advocating for their group against essentially a coalition of minority groups. That's what we Americans call our culture war. And there's a sort of no way out of it so long as we keep doing politics this way. Look, finally, let's talk alternatives to Christian nationalism. You are not trying to turn these people into far leftist Democrats. You've got problems with some of their own extreme forms of idolatry. But what do you want to convert the Christian nationalist to? Well, in some sense, I'd be happy if we just rewind the clock to 2016. And I think that the version of small C conservatism that we were talking about back then was a pretty good fit. There's things we can update, things we can improve on our economic policy, especially on immigration policy. But that would be an improvement over the nationalism that's on offer today. There's a bigger answer, and I hope to write another book about it someday, thinking through again the nature of political order from a Christian perspective and the roots, the foundations of the open society. I do think as a Christian, I want to say that the open society is a good thing to affirm and to love our neighbors by investing in and and defending this way of conceiving of our political project together. Yeah, but you reach back to a fascinating, beautiful figure in American history, Frederick Douglass, who was an escaped Mm -hmm. slave. For obvious reasons, Frederick Douglass had no particular reason to love America. And yet you find in Frederick Douglass something of an exemplar. What did Frederick Douglass speak about there that was so persuasive? Frederick Douglass is one of my favorite figures in in American history. You're right, he's an escaped slave who then became educated and became a spokesman for the cause of abolitionism, and then later in life became an ambassador and and a writer. He decided that America was his home. Despite all of its evils, he could only think of himself as an American. And he used the American creed, the Declaration of Independence, to condemn American practice. And he said, look, you're not even living up to what you say you are. If you were true to what you claim you are, Americans, then you will actually be better. You'll you'll get rid of slavery. You'll get rid of racism. And he said the same thing as a Christian. He condemned American Christianity 
for its complicity with the sins of racism and slavery as a Christian. He himself was a, an ordained minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So as an American and as a Christian, he used that to cultivate his love for those things and condemn the reality of American practice and American Christianity. It's a remarkable figure and a great way forward for us. Do you see Christian nationalism as ebbing in popular appeal at some point? The political pendulum always swings. The, it oscillates back and forth. It's amazing how victory has a thousand fathers, defeat is an orphan. And as soon as Christian nationalism suffers a clear defeat at the polls, whenever that may be, yes, the pendulum will swing. I think people will not want to be associated with a losing movement. I don't think there's a credible path forward for it to really achieve political victory and pass its agenda into law. I don't see a path for that to happen. But there's a lot of damage that can be done in the meantime while they try Paul D. Miller, author of The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism? And thanks for joining us on this Good Friday edition of the Religion and Ethics Report. Find us at the ABC Listen app. And thanks to Hong Jang and Bethany Stewart. I'm Andrew West. Enjoy your break. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.